And it was when I was working, working hard, learning myself that all of a sudden, boom, new ideas started coming to me left and right. So yeah, it, there is this connection. It's not just go lie in the hammock and be completely still for a week and you'll have all kinds of creative ideas. Yeah. It usually rides piggyback on top of a lot of hard work and learning yeah. and exploring. Absolutely. Welcome to this special best of edition of Power to Speak, the podcast. Unbelievably, the podcast is two years old. During that time, I've had the privilege to speak with creatives, business owners and thought leaders about the importance of creativity for their work and their life, as well as their unique journeys. Thanks to the podcast, I have learned, been inspired, educated and enthused by those I've interviewed. None more so than these seven inspiring gentlemen. I shall call them the Magnificent Seven. Bundled together here in my happy second birthday edition entitled Six Marketing Masters, One Public Philosopher and Me. Enjoy. I asked my dad what was creative, what creativity was, and he said it's just doing. <laughs> yeah, right. Like the Latin word to make, you know, to do, right? Yeah. Uh, absolutely. And you know? I think it was, it was Joseph that had, uh, Joseph Jaffe that had the best when I asked him on my, on my podcast and I can, it was, he, he said, productive originality. Yeah. Importance, yeah. And that is marketing 101, differentiation. You know, find, you know, be able to do your perceptual map or your competitive grid or whatever, or, or don't do that at all. But, but be different and try and be the best in the world at that thing that you are different in or on or about. Yeah. yeah. No, that's great. And that's, I mean, that's, please, that would, you know, that's what I'm looking to do is this is like early, early, early steps. So it's building on that and finding something different to do with it. Because as that, you know, that conversation we had at the beginning was what, you know, are there too many people out there doing this kind of thing? So have you... I like, have, I, I like your board, by the way, your board is very cool. So <laughs> I think one of the things with you good. is is so here now I'm a, you know this is what i'd like to see with your show imagine so now think about show number 100 think about show number 1000 think about what's going to change the board is 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 great because the board will always change right so i'm like looking at the board and see my name corona tv creative conversation you know so so if eventually you know that that board will just always be different so it's it's like the simpsons right you watch the start of the simpsons there's always something in the opening that's changed or Google's logo. But ultimately, it really comes down to this idea of finding your authentic voice. We just have to sit down, get a chair and pull a seat up at the table and to do the work. And that, yeah, and that, do you know what I mean? Taking, taking on board what creativity is. To me, that is having the guts to do something and try something out and be prepared. I know, you know, you know, we need to pay the bills and everything else, but how can we do something? How can we learn from it? And how can we share that? And to me, that's what creativity represents exactly what your dad said by saying sometimes we just got to do these things. And, and, if, and if it doesn't work, we walk away from it. Because sometimes yeah. it may just be our ego that is bruised rather than our, our pocket and our, uh, our bank account. So just before I let you go, this is the last question, because I just want to know what is your definition of creativity? It's a question that I ask all of my guests and I would, I would love your answer. How would you define creativity? I mean, I, I did a, a road show years ago called the Battle for the Heart. And the A in heart was, was capitalized as in art and science, heart and, you know, head and heart. 
And one of the things that I actually did was I looked up the definition or, or many definitions. And one thing, one phrase that I loved was productive originality. Um, originality, doing things different or differently, right? Productivity to get a result. Uh, now I've said that very deliberately because Einstein said the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. But doing things differently to get a result is the antidote or the solution to insanity. So what you realize is creativity, innovation, ultimately is the solution to, you know, status quo, um, to, you know, to insanity, right? Um, and, and that's why I love that definition. Now, who would have thunk, right, that creativity was the the antidote to insanity and it's productive originality when you do things differently when you are truly original and purposeful and meaningful and let's say you know goal driven and outcome driven that to me is the key solution so creativity is the solution across, i run around the corner and almost run into the famous statue that represents what i do the thinker uh, one of rodan's thinkers yeah and i suddenly realized this is a very muscular character something that had never occurred to me before oh rodan is representing the thinker as a doer that so it's not like there are two kinds of people in the world the thinkers and the doers the ideal is the person who, who, who thinks by doing, who does while thinking. It's a wonderful thing, and that's that productive originality. You're producing, you're acting, you're doing, you're making, and as that's happening, you're accessing things you would not have been able to access before. Um, that creativity sort of needs you know, no restrictions and, and uh, no constraints to thrive. And it turns out it's the, it's the exact opposite. And I think this is this is great for small businesses too, because you know, Active Campaign was was a role where I focused on solving challenges and inspiring small businesses. And I think you know, it's it's it, at Marketo, we were always taught brains over budget, right? Um, and and how you can sort of un unlock that creativity. So what we what what research has shown is that the more constraints you have, the more elegant the solution. And I think there's a couple. There's a big example of this if you look at uh, sort of Doritos when they talk about the, uh, they did the $1 Super Bowl ad, I think it was, right? Um, they spent $1 on a Super Bowl ad and it turned out to be that all those constraints made this beautiful, fun little story years ago. Uh, and then there's the um, uh, the other side of that, like you know, an example from music um, that I love is The Clash. Like I love The Clash, right? They, they wrote London Calling, this double live album under constraints, arguably one of the greatest albums ever created in punk history, right? Uh, and they were at war with their record label. They were they were re rehearsing in the guitar player's mother's garage. Uh, they were completely broke. I mean, they had all these constraints put on them uh, to to sort of pull out, you know, arguably one of the the most the finest moments in music. Um, yeah. and it was all because of constraints. Now you can see again, you can see that play out like when a band gets this big studio, this big luxury, all this money, uh, and they tend to <laughs> be much less creative and less. Uh, less adventurous with their with their music, so th that's kind of how I think about how it applies to anyone, uh, small yeah. business, large business, marketers, personal brands, whatever.
Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the same, you know, when, when you say to somebody improvise, you know, if I'm in a, if I, if I'm in a, an environment where I'm asking people to, to improvise and just make it up as they go along, unless you give them a theme, they, they kind of go, well, that sounds great, but what do I do? So you have to give them a box to play in. Otherwise yeah. they can't, they can't create. It's, it's, it's madness. I, I, I love that. Uh, the, the improv story and then, you know, I think um, Tim Washer, we, he was on the Year of the Media mm. the other day and, you know, adding yes. improv and comedy together, I think is something I've always, I've always appreciated. I've never been able to sort of uh, to do myself, but um, I, I like the idea of running with something and, and you know, uh, having fun with it. But improv has always been fascinating to me. No, we, we do it every day. I'm doing it right now. So are you. So, you know, we do, people go, eh, I can't do it. But yeah, we do it. We do what, it. What do you think then in terms of um, creativity and leadership? It, in order to lead, you kind of have to give people the space to be creative, to kind of give them the permission yeah. to to create. So there's a couple ways I think about this. And again, I think, you know, the age old question is, oh, or, or the age old challenge is like, oh, I wasn't born creative. I'm not creative. Like mm. that, That's bullshit. Right? Everyone can learn to be creative. It's something that can be taught. And so I think, you know, based on where I've found success with my teams over the years at, you know, LinkedIn or Microsoft or, or wherever is sort of finding what they have trapped inside, you know, that they, that they could get out. Right. Number one. And then number two, painting the picture of what that could look like as something creative and successful. Right. So, and bringing them examples to inspire them to get there. So it sounds a bit fluffy, but if you don't have that leader who's there to paint the picture, to bring you inspiration, and then try to pull that that creativity out of you and, and tell you, yes, you, you can do this, uh, then it gets lost, right? Uh, at LinkedIn, we had a thing called the intelligent risk that was part of our, our culture there. And I still take this. I took this to Microsoft. I bring it to, you know, everywhere I go. Uh, and it's basically um, the, the, you know, permission to fail, right? permission to try something new and fail. And the intelligent risk is, is I'm going to botch the definition it's been so long, but it's, it's basically the idea of uh, where the, um, the risk sort of, or, or being successful outweighs any sort of risk that, you know, could ever uh, uh, be of any concern. Right. So as part of our, um, our team OKRs each month or BPMs, whatever you call V2 moms, I would always say, here are the things we need to get done, but I want one sort of, uh, I want one intelligent risk for you. And this could be anything you want. Right. It could be start a podcast, it could be like start a TikTok channel, start a trend. I don't know, whatever you want to do. Uh, and uh, and then sort of one personal goal. Uh, and I think that's the key to development. I've had good managers. I've had terrible managers. I've had managers who uh, do nothing but drive for performance. But I think it's the ones who take a step back and, and you know, focus on uh, how do you how can you be more creative and how can I inspire you to do your best? It, it gets you past being that the fear of, of turning into that marketer that's miserable, that's celebrating mediocrity, that's pushing things out the door just to get them done to checking boxes. You know? I got to Coke and I had an incredibly creative boss that also encouraged me to use my head and to think and to speak up and to, if you have an idea, speak up. And if it's a good one, we'll do it. And if it's not, we'll either tell you it's not a good idea or we'll build on it and we'll turn it into a good idea. So, you know, it's the people in my life that have, have, opened my mind to what could be. And uh, I'm extremely grateful to people like my wife and to some of the bosses that I've had along the way. Yeah. So that that particular boss used your initiative that in yeah. and Gramble was just initiative right. and, you know, showed you that it, it was actually creativity. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I had a really interesting experience, maybe three or four weeks, maybe a month into my first time at Coke. I was in a meeting. I sat there. I didn't say anything. I had ideas, but I didn't say anything because there were like 15 people in the room and I was new and thought, hmm, I'm not going to say anything because that's not what you do. And after the meeting, we were walking out in the hall and I said to my boss, hey, have you ever thought about this? What about this? And he, I'll never forget, he stopped and said, oh, excuse me, what? And I was like, have you ever thought about such and such? And he's like, oh, hang on one second. Everybody, let's get back in the conference room. And I thought, <laughs> oh. and he pulled everyone back in the conference room and said, um, hey, is, have you guys all met the new guy, Jeff? He just got here from P&G. Um, really smart guy. He's done a lot of really good things. Um, he just had an idea. And I thought we will get everyone back in the conference room. And then he said, uh, before I do, Jeff, you were just in this meeting with this, all these people for the last hour. And I'm like, yeah. He's like, and you sat there and didn't say a word. You didn't, you didn't speak up. You didn't say a word. And then you, you like have the nerve to give me an idea in the hallway afterwards. <laughs> so like, you know, this, you know, Hey, everyone, I want you to meet Jeff. He's the guy that doesn't speak in meetings. And, uh, and he said, um, so, um, you know, it's too late to share your idea, but um, I want you to know that this is Coca-Cola and um, it's okay for you to have ideas. And in fact, you're expected to have them when you're in the meetings, not in the hallways. And uh, so this is never going to happen again. You're going to speak up in the meetings and I pay you to think and to push. And if it's a great idea, we're going to do it. And if it's not, I'm going to tell you it's not. And I'll tell you why. But you need to show up. And, uh, and for me, someone might have looked at that as getting scolded in a meeting. I looked at it as the greatest gift anyone had ever given me in my career because I was like, what? What? You mean all these crazy things in my head? All these ideas? I can, I can actually say them? And, uh, and he was like, yeah. And then, he, and then he jokingly said to everybody, hey, everyone, you're going to be 10 minutes late to your next meeting. When you get there, I want you to tell everyone in your next meeting that you were late because this new guy, Jeff, didn't share his ideas in the last meeting. And I was like, touche, you got me. Okay, game on. And from then it was like, oh my gosh, like, oh my gosh, the world is so different. Um, and we did some incredible things as a result of being allowed to think, allowed to be creative. It's a funny thing that it seems so intuitive. Because, I mean, I mean that is that's an amazing story. I mean, who was that guy? I would, you know, just how his name is. His name is Steve Coonan. He's one of the greatest influences in my life. He's yeah. now um, he's now the chief executive officer of the Atlanta Hawks professional basketball team in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. He's the most creative, uh, most amazing person I've ever worked for and with. Uh, continues to inspire me on a daily basis, yeah. but he he's. He's, you know, I jokingly used to tell him, you're, you're, it's your fault. You're responsible for me. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I'm less, I'm less the person that says 2020 has been a glorious year. It hasn't, it sucked on so many levels. Um, you know, it really has sucked. It's been an awful, awful year uh, for individuals, but it's been a fantastic year for humanity and creating this, this, and, and that insight is not even mine. That came from one of my guests. So there you go. Yeah. You well, know, so, so talking of your guests, I've got to mention before I let you go, um, Tom Morris, <laughs> I just love, and I ended up popping up when you interviewed Mark Masters. I don't know if you remember, I ended up popping up in your uh, after party. Uh, and Tom Morris, the uh, public philosopher, was one of the 
guest of well one of the yeah there in that room love tom and you know i went and looked in because i loved what he was talking about then um but just in in terms of and i think it was him that said that speaking is teaching he says well i've got an unusual request she says oh I work for DDB Needham Advertising in Chicago, and one of our clients is Disney. Um, they're a home video uh, 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 company, uh, Buena Vista Pictures. And she said, we're doing, we're doing some commercials, and we want to portray the wisdom of the Winnie the Pooh stories. And we're, we're, we've searched the country for a philosopher to be the spokesman for Winnie the Pooh. We've searched the East Coast. We've searched the West Coast. We're looking for a philosophy professor with personality, and we cannot find one. She said, and I said, well, why are you calling me? I was at Notre Dame. And she said, well, I had a, a beach weekend with my, with my father, who was a Notre Dame graduate. And I told him about this futile search for a philosopher with personality. And she said, we're just going to give up on this campaign. And he said, no, no, no. Promise me one thing. You'll call Notre Dame before you give up. Just one more place. She said, okay. So she called the administration at Notre Dame. I'm looking for somebody to represent Winnie the Pooh as a figure of wisdom. And I'd love a philosopher. And they said, boy, have we got the guy for you. Call Tom Morris. And so within days, I was in Los Angeles with my family. And we were filming commercials for Winnie the Pooh, national television commercials. And um, it was the most unusual and fascinating experience. And I said yes to it mostly but to give my kids a treat um, yeah. because they loved Winnie the Pooh. And my wife and I had read to each other when we were dating Winnie the Pooh stories in college. And so it was just too perfect. And so I didn't know the amount of attention because they premiered these commercials on the Today Show, NBC Today Show in America, which was at its peak as the number one morning TV show. You know, it's like millions of people are seeing me in my reproduced Notre Dame office in Hollywood talking about Winnie the Pooh. And I'm juxtaposed with Pooh characters and all this. And it's like, that got people's attention for my uh, speeches, my nascent speeches at that time, because rather than being, wait, he's a philosopher. It's like, he's the guy who pitches Winnie the Pooh. Yeah, let's <laughs> have him come in, you know? So it, it, it was like jet fuel to my beginning career as a public philosopher. It's so much fun. Um, Joseph was talking about Corona TV and his podcast. And I was like, well, I want to start one of those. How do I do that? And, you know, all well, you guys were really sort of giving me some good, some good advice. And you were a guest on his show, I think the following day. So I came, I came along, and I, well, I watched that live. And then I thought, oh, I'll just pop into the Zoom room afterwards. There was like an after show, <laughs> which, you know, talk about Talk about kind of putting yourself outside your comfort zone. I can remember my finger wavering over the link. It was like, shall I do this or shall I not? But I, I seriously thought I was going to pop up in a room with, I don't know, 50, 60 other people. And I'd just be one of the little thumbnails and I'd just listen. But when I clicked on the link and I popped up in this room with like six of you guys, there was you and Joseph and, and Tom Morris. And I, I mean, it was just mad for me to kind of turn up in this room but but you were all very welcoming i felt like i'd gate crashed no some, but some listen no, no 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 it's like same here and you realize that oh you always have that sense of trepidation and i always did when i first started out i i uh i had a project called talking content and i reached out to over 100 people and asked them and interviewed them and these this was the, my little line in the sand to get to know these people joseph mark Trevor Young, all these people from around the world. But when you read someone's book, 
you're a little bit in awe of such, do you know what I mean? We're all in awe of these people. Yeah, absolutely. And I only realised that everyone's, everyone's pretty down to earth at the end of the day. Yeah. As long as we don't abuse someone's time, as long as what we can share with one, with one another is useful. As Listen, it's a nice tip that sometimes it's nice to shout and wave the flag for somebody else's work because then they think, hey, they're on my level. So when we kind of come into these places, which is why it feels easier now, like when we had the, the trial for you, the media online, offline, and we had Tom rounding it off, you know, good guest of your show, rounding it off of his whimsical philosophy. And it was yeah. brilliant. And which is why I love about we can reach out to lots of people that, that and the guardian, there's no, there's no, no one guard the guard in these spaces anymore that we can reach out to people. And, and, and then when the connection's there, it's so much more easier. But I yeah. like that feeding back to everyone else and we share it all together. So when we, when we come together now and we listen to people on the screen and we do it all online, it's, it's, it's a way that everyone feels a part of something. I'm a big believer in that we don't necessarily need to create a hierarchy. It doesn't matter where you are standing or sitting, you can all be in that same space together. Do you know what I mean? Rather than talk, yes. being at a conference and someone's talking at you, talking down at you, then why can't we adjust that so we all feel a part of something? Like, as you said there, when I was part of the room, it was lovely, it was great, yeah. we were chatting, and, and it was just a nice way to end a Friday that I felt welcomed. And so I'll always try my hardest to make those people that have been there at the wheel and doing it for many, many years feel a part of it as well. Because then they yeah. become our friends. Yeah, and they and they do, you know. And uh, Joseph Jaffe it comes along to the lunch club. Tom Morris comes along to the lunch club because now they feel part of that community. So important. I love yeah. that. Yeah. Again, they're overseas. People in America. People in America come on board. So we do an bit and we kind of join in, and everyone a mutual respect for everybody yes. that's there, and yeah. those people that know that people give without an acceptance. You know, you when you walk into a networking event, you want to kind of sell your wares or get something out. But when you create a space where people understand this, and there's this unwritten etiquette that yeah. you are a part of and respect that and understand one another and not there to coerce or abuse or in a way that makes somebody else think, well, this isn't really for me. It's a bit. Yeah. That, that is, yeah, that's worth its weight to me. It, it, means it is. Me. Same sort of thing is what do you want to be known for standing out for that uh, as a brand, as a personal brand, as a business brand, as a non-profit brand, um, standing by that and watch, you know, and, and then creating content around whatever that is you stand for. So people get a good feeling for who you are and what you do. And I think the the problem is you can't be all things to all people now because you'll just disappear into the, the noise. Um, I think a good aspect of being um, a, a writer or a and or a journalist is curiosity. And I think you feed your curiosity and I've had that from a very young age and so i'm still curious i'm still curious yeah. and that's that's what feeds evolution i think to a large degree because you're you're pushing boundaries and you're curious about something um have you had feedback from from people that have kind of been released from their boxes by by your workshops that suddenly mm. suddenly things have, because just so people know mm. uh, i mean after this but they will go and look you up and, and look at what you do but the the gifts and the memes and all of that kind of social media data and statistics mm. that you kind of mix in to to what it is that it's you know it's kind of that constant looking at it going oh my gosh how, you know how do you how do you um how do you put that into a quite staid brand yeah so it's a really good question and the reality is 
there's two types of thinking that we talked about, and that is the squirrel thinking, which is the reacting, and like, you know, I've got this gif of the squirrel shaking its backside, and it's because it's just like, they're just always looking for what, what's new, what's next, and it's like this restless desire. Um, and that's exhausting. I'm exhausting just even imitating a squirrel. Um, not every brand can be that quick. Not every brand wants to be that quick. Um, but the reality is once you set a content strategy around what you can and be willing to talk to, certain brands realize that they will get more of a hit if they're quicker than others, mm. and if they're quick to have the first opinion on something. So what the beautiful thing about this newsjacking thing is, is being able to tell clients it's a tactic. It's just a tactic, it's not a strategy. And then once they understand that, they're willing, and it's the reason why you mentioned at the top of the show that I'm a content strategist. I started off with this guy who kind of helped co-invent this tactic. And then all of a sudden, it led to me being a strategist because you have to know what you stand for before you can then know how you would want to use a tactic. Where people got it wrong was when they thought newsjacking was a strategy, when really it's just a tactic about being quick and clever around things, wait for it, that you have a right to be quick and clever about. You know, the royal, um, they, the royal couple, um, Kate and Will, having a baby back in the day, there were certain brands that were totally trying to newsjack that, and not in one million in one years would Kate or Will uh, subscribe to that particular brand of mm. cider, for example. Yeah. They just wouldn't. And that's when it fell foul, and that's when I created my sort of, what I call my, my brand balls ups, which is brands behaving badly because of a lack of strategy. And I wish people had read the book and not just gotten into this shiny toy syndrome of just being quick and clever and newsjacking the frick out of anything that walked. Yeah. Because it just led to some really embarrassing yeah. scenes. Yeah. Well, I did watch uh, something in, in preparation for talking mm. to you today, death jacking. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> tell me oh. about it. Tell, tell me David about Bowie. Oh, my yeah. God. Oh. So right now, um, just because I'm trying to be comfortable around Jackie, because uh, I don't want to be intimidated, I'm wearing uh, some leisure shoes, which I would call in this country leisure, leisure shoes, and they have holes in them. They're plastic, and um, they are called Crocs. But the reality is, oh, Jackie, I can't believe this. <laughs> David Bowie, can we call him a musical icon? He is, rest he is in peace? my absolute okay. idol, so yeah. Oh, my God. I think this is the time when we get all the fans to stand up. <laughs> yeah. So Jackie and John fans, what do you think of David Bowie? Oh, anyway. Um, oh, look, here's two now. Oh, what do you think of David Bowie? What do I think of him? Yeah, I mean, his music. Obviously, he's dead. You're, be you're being recorded, by the way. Oh, are yes. we really? <laughs> oh, well, what? what? <laughs> what Tell us. Both no, no, no. Do you like... Do you, do, can not... you think of one song? No, I'm not a big music buff. No. Can you think of I'm one David Bowie song? I'm a really, is Which one? China Girl. China girl. Oh, should we sing it? Should we sing it? When you say this is on, I'm not sure what you're on about. Is this you having me on it? You're going to be the star, Mike. Does Paul Light have some of Facebook group? Oh, yeah, this, you're going to be big on so what, all our channels. What is the role you two are doing now, then? What's all this in there? So this is about uh, so content marketing. It's today. all to do with conferences. Ah, you see, I it's wasn't in during the day. Yeah, ah, so it's yes. like an interview. Yeah, yeah exactly. See. So John was the, the speaker today, so I'm interviewing him for my podcast. Uh, well, actually, she's interviewing both of us. Yeah, <laughs> you are now a guest on my podcast. <laughs> We're live to our massive 
I've got to phone the wife up, put the computer on. Hey, right. <laughs> <laughs> Back in the room. So was, we were talking about David Bowie, I know. Yes. Uh, yeah, so the the, 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 um, the this brand of plastic garden shoe with holes in it, uh, looks like Swiss cheese, uh, created the David Bowie, what I call the death shoe, because they basically put the red lightning bolt on it and commemorated his death. And it, it, when things are seen to be a little too salesy, particularly around when people die, it's, it is death jacking. And I really want people to think about the strategy of the brand. Do the brand want to be seen as someone who latches onto something for their own personal gain? Or could it be more around their purpose? And I don't think Crocs, believe it or not, Crocs have had a major strength to strength thing, particularly in lockdown. And they've become this massive fashion icon shoe. Uh, yeah, yeah. Massive now. But they have actually, um, they, the lovely thing, listen, the lovely thing about social media is everyone can forget if a brand responds correctly, they'll forgive them. Yeah, and nothing absolutely. is, nothing is, and I think that's comforting for you and me, because as we try to write and create content, we need to know that we can be ballsy, we can take risks, we can be audacious, we can be curious, and we can be forgiven. Because I think a lot of people live in fear of upsetting people, but unless, unless like Patty Powers content strategy, unless someone goes to prison, it's all okay. <laughs> Unless someone dies. Yeah, and then yeah exactly. I don't think, I don't, uh, uh, other than Mike for absolutely hijacking our podcast, I don't think anyone's going to die in uh, in this recording this of this scenario. podcast. No. Actually, I'm going to no, forgive I, Mike because he was so, he was loving. He was, he was nice. He, he was, was really nice, loving. I would, obviously, yeah. he will have to be, he won't be completely edited out. <laughs> I know. Yeah, knows, I think that's just such a welcome addition. <laughs> <laughs> campaigns then, marketing campaigns. I mean, I've heard you talk before about uh, Converse and how you came to that in a, in, from a different angle. So tell us a little bit about what happened at Converse, how you kind of not rebranded them, obviously not, it wasn't a rebrand, but you kind of renewed them for a new generation. Yeah, well, I mean, I was part of a bigger team that, that did this. So I, I often get credited with a lot of stuff that was the result of a big team working together. But we went in and we were getting ready to turn 100 years old and we were a heritage basketball brand. And, you know, you walk through the building and it was pictures of old basketball players in, you know, uniforms from the fifties and forties. And you thought, well, this is, you know, and then you look, go out in the world and you see these cool, really cool kids and rock bands and street artists and, you know, wearing the old Chuck Taylors and punk rockers. And you thought, well, gosh, why is the image of what we look at ourselves in the building so different from what is the image that people think about us in the world. And we, we, we kept, we were really determined to tell people that we were a heritage basketball brand and we were, we we're getting ready to turn hundred years old. And this sums up like the moment that we thought, okay, we have to change. We're in a focus group and we were talking about our hundred year anniversary and we were very proud of it. And the moderator was pushing these young people, Hey, Converse is turning hundred. It's great. It's a great thing. Not many brands make it to hundred. And the kids were like, yeah, okay, cool. And then it was like, no, no, you don't understand hundred. That's a big deal for a brand to make it to hundred years old. Like, yeah. All right, whatever. And then he came back to it a third time and said, I want to talk about this, this hundred year anniversary one more time, because it's a really big deal. And this kid, this young person looked at the moderator and said, you know, Hey man, you keep telling me how old you are. I'm just going to think you're old. And for us, it was like, Oh my gosh, we're so impressed with how old we are and they don't really care. So why do we care so much? We're not going to, why would we want to work so hard to make them care about how old we are? They don't care. They only care about now. So we started to think about, we had all these incredible creative people that were taking our brand in a really unusual and different places. So we just followed them. 
And when we got in the rooms with them, we said, what can we do to help? How can we participate in what you're doing instead of just market to you and ask you to buy shoes every time we talk to each other? How can we help you? And like, we kept asking that question. We started in China with a couple of punk rock bands who told us we've always wanted to play our music in another city. And we were like, what do you mean? Well, we, we've only been able to play our, our music in small places in Beijing. Like we've never left Beijing. Well, I'm sorry, what? So we're like, so we, we literally bought a bus and we put them in a bus and we toured them around five or six cities around China and we shot a documentary film. And it was like, what? This is amazing. And it was a, it was a universal story about young people who had something to say, who were following a dream. And for us, it was like, why wouldn't we do that? That's, and then we came back to Brooklyn and we did the same thing. And kids told us, I have no place to record. Okay. We'll build a recording studio for you. And, and what you will. Yeah, sure. Like, because we want to help you. And we did that. And what we just flipped the way we thought about marketing to people, particularly these kids are not kids that you can market to. They're ones that like, they, they have a BS meter and like right away, they're like, "Mm, I don't like you. So you have to show up and bring something to the party. And that's what we did. And as a result, you know, changed all of our lives dramatically. Um, not just our business, our business grew dramatically, but it changed the way everybody on the team th- thought about how marketers and brands should engage with, with people, people, not consumers, not target markets, people. Yeah. 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 So the, so just to understand the money that would have been spent on a, on a huge campaign yeah. was then put into recording studios and buses and that, that kind of thing. And actually, do you think the sales were more successful doing it that way? So, I mean, there, there are uh, business cases to be made. Advertising can work effect- effectively, but, but we, we ran a recording studio. We built and ran a recording studio that recorded with over 3,000 artists over five years. That it cost us to r- build and run the studio with the equivalent of one eight-week flight of television advertising cost. So I, we, we sacrificed one eight-week campaign for five years of interaction with consumers in a deep and meaningful way. Wow. And each, each, each band that came in, picked up their phone. They started taking pictures. They started broadcasting to their social media networks. Look what Converse is doing with me. And it was way, way more effective. And over the nine, nine or, you know, nine or so years that we were there, we went from about a $350 million business to almost a $3 billion. Uh, but Harry Potter you've used as well for was uh, it General Motors. Yeah, yeah. well, the first book um, uh, in 1997, if Aristotle ran General Motors, oh. and then when po- uh, the Potter books came out, I wasn't even going to read them because I thought they were just books for little kids. So a young philosopher called me up, and maybe he, he emailed me first, and he said, hey, I'm doing a book uh, called Harry Potter and Philosophy, and I would love you to read write an essay for the book. And if you agree, your essay will be the lead essay for the book. And I wrote him back and I said, well, look, I, my kids are grown or older now. They're not, I don't have little kids in the house. We, we haven't been reading these stories. And he, he wrote me back. He said, they're not just for kids, they're for everybody. And this went on for weeks. He would call me, he would write me. He got his favorite professor who was one of my graduate students to call me and write me. And I said, guys, I'll read the first Potter book. And if I like it, I'll write something. And if I don't, you guys will leave me alone about this, okay? Because we've tried. Okay, okay, that's fine. Yeah, read the first book. I ended up reading all the books that were out at that time, the first four or five. 
six times through cover to cover. People didn't realize how much philosophy there was in these books. She was trained as a classics major, uh, J.K. Rowling, and, and she was using Aristotle. And she was using, So I ended up writing an article for the guy's book called The Courageous Harry Potter. Uh, Aristotle thought the most important virtue is courage, because without it, you won't use any of the others under pressure. Um, and so that's the main theme of the stories. The scared little kid stands up to the main threat of his day. How does he develop that courage? Well, so I couldn't stop writing after the article. I ended up writing a whole book called Harry. It was first of all called Harry Potter and the Meaning of Life. But the main business editor at Doubleday, uh, an agent I had sent it to him because she knew he loved Harry Potter. He'd been reading the stories to his grandchildren. And he calls me up. I'm in the car with my family on vacation or something. I have to pull over to the side of the road. He said, this is the greatest book on leadership I've ever seen. We've always loved your book if Aristotle ran General Motors. Can you retitle it something like that? and put in some business stuff, and we'll do it. And it was double-day currency policy. So I said, okay. <laughs> so it became if Harry Potter ran General Electric. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you use it as well. The, 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 the five, um, oh, I don't know what to call them, the five tips or whatever that yeah. started with courage. Yeah. came from Harry Potter. And you've kind of you've used that against, you know, other that's right. That's, that's right. I use that in, in Plato's Lemonade Stand, too, you know, because Harry had this way of, of developing, building courage. Because people say, if I don't have courage, how do I get it? Well, there's Harry Potter. He does certain things, right? Like he, he surrounds himself with support. So, so he never just confronts something totally by himself. He's got Ron. He's got Hermione. He's got Hagrid. He's got all these friends, right, who are kind of helping him out. And, and usually when he goes into danger, he thinks about what's at stake. And it's usually saving the life of one of his friends. And, and so he focuses on that, not on the risk, not on the danger. And there are all these little steps, little things that Harry Potter does throughout the stories that any of us can do to build that. And, and finally, we discover fear is a feeling. Courage is a choice. Yeah. Heroic people will always say, well, I didn't feel like a hero. Courageous people would always, will always say, well, I didn't feel courageous. That's because that's not a feeling. The fear is the feeling. The courage is the choice. And that's a choice you can make when you've done some other things in your life right. It really helps you do that, in, yeah. no matter what the, the risk might I be. Can, I can see going back to... Um the experimenting and everything that you're doing now and the stand-up I can I can imagine that you were the joker in the class is that were you the joke were you the, the guy that was always making the jokes wanted to be funny yeah I was Jackie there were <laughs> girls to attract Jackie there were girls out there yeah attention if I couldn't do it in any other way by not by not my looks I, I had to I had to give it I had to, I had to give it I had to give it that yeah I have to say it works Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, then please leave a five-star review on whichever platform you're on. And if you'd like to receive information about future guests or would like to know more about Power to Speak coaching, then sign up for our fortnightly newsletter at powertospeak.co.uk. Bye for now.